This is Pastor Scott Olbert for Spiritual Onion. Sad to say I'm ending my Onion intros. If you have listened to the previous nine podcasts, you know more about Onions than you ever wanted or needed to know. And I am weary of scouting resources for Onion scraps. Actually, knowing some information about Onions is akin to the Church's approach to religious and spiritual matters. That is, we are told what we are to believe about God. Roman Catholics listen to the Pope, the priests, the councils, and the Catholic theologians. Doesn't matter if it is Augustine, Aquinas, or Rahner, the truth according to the Romans is the truth. Lutherans do the same with Luther in the doctrinal book of Concord. Often, Luther's just regurgitate Luther's insights from 500 years ago. And the Anabaptists didn't think Luther went far enough in his Reformation, so we experience the birth of the Mennonites, the Quakers, and the Amish. Once we no longer have one holy Roman Catholic Church, the one becomes many until we have perhaps 400 church bodies, each with its own version of the truth. But isn't it like me talking about onions? Eventually, we have to taste an onion, put onions on a pizza, add them to our salad, in order to determine what onions taste like. We have to experience an onion. Shouldn't it be the same when it comes to spirituality? Don't we have to stop talking about spiritual matters and experience them? Now, the problem for established denominations is that once we enter the world of spiritual experience, we likely encounter aspects of the divine that do not fit neatly into organized religion's constructs. What if we experience the divine feminine? I doubt that the Romans will like that. What if we have an experience of the shadow side of God? Nope, Lutherans and Methodists don't talk about that. What if we encounter the spiritual world in our dreams? Well, Christians are few who want to spend time working with their dreams. That is why they now reside in the psychological realm. And so it goes. Yet, The scriptures do provide a way to think about and reflect upon our experience. And sometimes the scriptures correct the way we think about ourselves and our experience. In this podcast, I'd like to address the experience of happiness. We Americans seem obsessed with happiness. Whenever I ask parents their desire for their children, almost invariably they answer, I just want them to be happy. Couples come in for counseling because one or both are no longer happy. The Constitution asserts our right to pursue happiness. And I love the pharmaceutical commercials showing extremely happy people because they swallowed the magic pill. 
All the while, the narrator quickly runs down all the side effects, vomiting, diarrhea, fatigue, fever, and possibly death. But hey, at least it will be a happy death. Dorothy Sayers, a colleague of C.S. Lewis, Owen Barfield, and J.R.R. Tolkien, points out that the word happy does not appear in the New Testament. Let that sink in for a moment. The word happy does not appear in the New Testament. Wouldn't you think that if Jesus reveals the nature of reality, that he would have mentioned happiness as an aspect of spirituality? But he doesn't. How is it that out of over 200 feeling words, we grasp one, happy, as though it is the be-all and end-all? What's going on? Thomas Keating, the father of Centering Prayer, speaks of the three false programs for happiness. He theorizes that in childhood we all develop these false programs for happiness in response to a deficit in one or more of these areas of life. Our need for safety and security, our need for affection and affirmation, and our need for power and control. Most often we have one that stands out from the other two. In and of themselves, these are healthy human needs. The spiritual danger comes when we are deprived of our healthy needs, and thereby unconsciously do we develop our false programs for happiness. Because of these emotional wounds, Keating perceives that we each develop a false self. We attach to people, places, and situations that purport to give us more of what we think we need. And we develop aversions to people, places, and situations that seem to threaten our desire for more and more of what we experienced as a deficit. Let's look at these false programs for happiness. The first false program for happiness has to do with safety and security. A child might have experienced poverty, a parental divorce, abuse, or some other trauma. For example, Mary experienced an ineffectual father, an abusive brother, and a mother who offered little guidance or structure. And as one pastoral psychotherapist put it, what are the three things we need as a child? Structure, structure, and structure. So as an adult, Mary kept the curtains closed to keep out the world. Out of fear, she was unable to tolerate any tradesperson coming into her home. At community events she had to attend, she snuck out and smoked cigarettes by herself. In her constant attempt to experience safety and security, she installed a home security system. Instead of safety and security, the alarm system added to her anxiety. She would forget the code. A false alarm would send her spiraling downwards, and it was one more thing she was unable to manage. Mary shows us that the pursuit of more and more of what we think will compensate for our childhood wound only creates more psychological pain. 
The second false program for happiness revolves around the need for affection and affirmation. Growing up, my mother's love was conditional. As long as my actions pleased her, she was loving and supportive. On the other hand, when I exhibited my true self, she would emotionally withdraw into a stony silence. My father and I were psychological opposites, so there was continual judgment and anger coming from him. For many years as a parish pastor, I would spend my time attempting to please everyone in the congregation. I would work overtime to gain the approval of the most rigid and judgmental people in the congregation. Here was my pursuit of more and more affection and affirmation. Of course, it didn't work, and it caused me greater psychological pain. In my attempt to gain greater affection and affirmation from the wrong people, it proved dysfunctional. And that is what happens. Dysfunctional families teach us to take our needs to the wrong people. The third arena of need comes from a deficit in power and control. If parents are overly rigid and demanding, children experience being powerless to make their own decisions and do not learn to stand on their own two feet. They cannot learn from life's mistakes because their every step is controlled by parents. On the first Sunday in one of my congregations, I was greeted by the previous council president. He shook my hand and said, before you make any decisions, you need to come and talk to me. To his chagrin, I never set foot in his home, and he remained an adversary during my ministry. I constantly frustrated his need for power and control. The true spiritual adventure consists of a series of humiliations as we attempt to let go of the false self and its false programs for happiness. Richard Rohr suggests we need one humiliation a day to keep us spiritually healthy. Well, that makes true spirituality a hard sell. Most Americans have no interest in buying in. Late in life, Bill W., the founder of 12-step programs, suggested that once a person has stopped drinking and has worked the steps, the critical step is what he called emotional sobriety. The spiritually awakened person must find some degree of detachment from narcissistic emotional needs. I'll paraphrase and add to the words of Father Richard Rohr. The word emotion comes from the Latin for movement. It's a body-based reaction that intensely snags us. The body holds shame, guilt, hurts, memories, and childhood conditioning. Emotions feel like truth, and it is hard to detach from our feelings. An emotion is meant to be experienced as a rain cloud. The cloud comes overhead, drops its rain on our head, and we get drenched in the emotion. Having delivered its message, the cloud is meant to then go on its merry way. 
but too often we grab hold of the cloud and drown in the emotion. Emotions are alarms alerting us to something we should pay attention to. If we learn to listen to them instead of always obeying them, they can be very good teachers. We need to be aware that our emotions can mislead us because we can misread the situation. Emotions are far too personal and based in our early practiced neural responses. Our basic programs for survival, which are the source of most emotions, are largely in place by the age of four or five. We build our lives around our programs for survival, which we falsely assume will give us happiness. The problem is these programs will not work in the long run. They are almost entirely dependent on outside events and other people conforming to our needs. They are inherently unstable because our happiness moment to moment is based outside of ourselves. Happiness is an inside job and not dependent on outer circumstances or other people's response to us. God is no longer out there somewhere in the sky, but within us, anchored by the Christ, who is the symbol of our union with God. Of course, we will still have ups and downs and emotions of all kinds, but we don't get overridden by them. We don't identify with them. We let them come and we let them go. Letting go of our false programs of happiness involves grief. And in a happiness-obsessed culture, sadness is to be avoided. Alice Miller points out in her book, The Drama of the Gifted Child, that if as adults we are able to snuggle into our father's lap, it not only would look odd, but it would not heal the wound from the lack of affection and acceptance from our father when we were a child. We have to grieve what we never received. Earlier, I mentioned that sometimes the scriptures can correct our distorted perceptions. In the wilderness, Jesus undergoes three temptations by the devil that correspond to our three false programs for happiness. Pause for a moment and consider the word devil. It has to be one of the most misunderstood words in the religious realm, overladen by images from Dante's Inferno, horror movies, fire and brimstone preachers, and cultural klutzes. In New Testament Greek, the word for devil is diablos, in Jesus' day, Diablos referred to our notion of inner concepts, thoughts, and ideas. Rather than psychological experience, these mental realities were seen in more concrete terms. One scholar suggests the Greek word for Satan could best be translated as suffering. We suffer with personal issues seemingly outside our conscious control. We are tormented by our psychological issues. 
Yet, as we will see with Jesus, Diablos is an adversary who can help us in forming our identity. The first temptation corresponds to our need for safety and security. Jesus has fasted for 40 days, and he is famished. So the temptation is for Jesus to turn stones into bread. A lifetime supply. Open a bakery. Hoard food in your bunker. In reply, Jesus says, we do not live by bread alone. In a sense, transforming hunger into a need for spiritual food. The second temptation comes as Diablos takes Jesus to a high place where they view all the nations of the world. If Jesus worships Diablos, then all peoples will bow down to him as the world's top dog. Here is the ultimate fulfillment of the need for affection and affirmation. Again, Jesus turns away from grabbing more of this need and establishes God as the ultimate object of adoration. Finally, Diablos urges Jesus to throw himself off the highest point on the temple to prove that the angels under his command will make sure he doesn't harm himself. Here Jesus rebukes Diablos by insisting that one does not put God to the test. That is, no one can act as though one has the power and control over the nature of things. Spiritually, we must find our rightful place in the scheme of things, humbling ourselves before God. Our spiritual practice includes paying attention to our distortions around our needs as a human being. We must dethrone happiness as the goal of life. Where do we still need and pursue feverishly happiness in the form of greater safety and security, more affection and admiration, greater power and control? Once we become aware of our deficits, we suffer our wounds, grieve what has been lost, never to be recovered, and we let go of our futile adult attempts to fill the hole in our interior life. Instead, we embrace spiritual reality, which offers us the grace-filled possibility of transforming these painful pursuits for happiness. Huh, I think I will feel better if there are 5,000 people listening to my podcast. Then I will have the affirmation, admiration, and acceptance to make me happy. Just kidding. Well, maybe 10,000? Thank you for listening and tune in in two weeks for another slice of the Spiritual Onion. And go to yourspiritualonion.com for all previous podcasts. I hurt myself today To see if I still feel I focused on the pain the only thing that's real the needle tears a hole the old 
thing Try to kill it all away But I remember I am still 